0: Hello and welcome to a special holiday episode of Stephanomics. Whether you like it or not, you're probably not going to forget this Christmas. But I hope wherever you are, you're safe and hopeful for the year to come. I was going to say, it can't be worse than 2020, but that feels like a mistake. Instead, let me just welcome to Stephanomics one of the more interesting minds in British policymaking of the last few years, the Chief Economist of the Bank of England, Andy Holding. we can get into an interesting conversation, not just about this incredible year 2020, but what lies ahead for the world and also maybe for economists and policymakers. Andy, we have actually next week on the show, I'm going to be talking to Bloomberg correspondents about 2020 and thinking about the year ahead. And I'm going to start by asking them what their most memorable moment of 2020 was. What, what was what's going to stand out for you, do you think?
1: Thanks, Steph, thanks for that kind of introduction and, and Merry Christmas to, to you and everyone else. Well, we're Sport for Choice, aren't we, this year? Uh, memorable events, uh, as often happens at crisis time, have come thick and fast, but from a potentially very long list, I'd say the one of the signature moments through the year would be back in March, when everything was really kind of kicking off, uh, not least in financial markets. And we saw within financial markets uh, people moving away, even from the, on the face of it, safest uh, sets of assets on the planet. You know, government securities in the major advanced economies, and into cash, the so-called dash for cash. And that was a pretty sobering moment, a pretty surprising moment, a pretty scary moment. All the S's, uh, and of course, elicited in response a big policy reaction from central banks globally to try and staunch that that dash for cash. I'd say in what has been a, a memorable for all the wrong reasons year, that event above all others will probably stick with me for quite some time.
0: As you said, there was a remarkable response to that from central banks and then ultimately a big fiscal response from governments to the crisis. I'm not going I don't want to dwell too much on what's happened in the past, but as one of the many people who had wondered about the possible Policy space, room for policymakers to respond to the next crisis. You know, over the last few years, given how much we'd had to do after the global financial crisis and how hard it had been to unwind that support, especially coming from from central banks, were you sort of pleasantly surprised that there was still quite a lot of ammunition that central banks and others could bring to bear?
1: I think Steph, I was pleasantly surprised that um, we'd learned some of the lessons from the earlier crisis. I think uh, central banks and governments, too, had, um, you know, their their twitch muscle had been developed, their policy twitch muscle had been developed during the last crisis. And that meant, I think, we were much better prepared this time to act at real pace uh, and to act at uh, real scale. And it's been both. I mean, let's say the Bank of England, my home institution, we've announced more QE uh, this year in the 10 months since the crisis started as we carried out in the preceding 10 years. So uh, that is sobering uh, backdrop as well, but I think crucially and crucially different than uh, 10 years ago, we've had fiscal and monetary acting in partnership at scale and at speed. And that, that, that doubling of the dose, I think, has made a crucial difference and a necessary difference given the the pace and scale of the crisis we've had.
0: Well, you talk about doses. Of course, we're now watching vaccinations go forth uh, ac- across the UK, uh, the US, uh, surely other countries to follow. We've already had a lot of people vaccinated in, in China. How much of a bounce back do you think we'll see from that? Do you think we'll be surprised by how quickly economies bounce back?
1: Well, I think near term, very near term, the next quarter or two, um, as the vaccine rolls out, it's going to remain a bumpy ride. Uh, Not as bumpy as earlier this year, but bumpy nonetheless, because we see virus cases on the rise. We see restrictions on the rise. And some of that stop-go cycling we've seen this year, I think, will persist very near term. As we move into, let's say, the second quarter, certainly the second half of next year, um, I could well imagine uh, not so much a relief rally. We've seen that in financial markets, but a kind of relief recovery uh, as the virus risk uh, dissipates. Now, the key question for me is at what pace? Um, will we see behavior you know, only gradually drift back you know, as after the global financial crisis or as after the Great Depression, say, Or will we see more of a snapback in behaviours, in sentiment, in socialising, in spending? Lots of S's in the sentences today. Um, I don't know. I think the jury is out on that. Um, I think this has been a different sort of crisis with a different sort of source. And therefore, I think there's at least the the potential, the prospect of us being in World 2 and of a not quite as sharp as the fall, but nonetheless a much sharper than we'd not ordinarily expect. When you speak to people, you can almost taste that pent-up demand, that desire to get back to something closer to, to normality. And that would certainly be my hope and, and perhaps even my expectation for 2021. We spent the whole year, as central banks always do, saying how uncertain things are, but things really are uncertain <laughs> and especially very near term. Funnily enough, the further you peer into the future right now, in a way, the clearer things are becoming now in the light of the vaccine use. I feel much more confident about H2 2021 than I do about Q1 2021, which is unusual, but should be encouraging because, you know, the plans do now look sunny.
0: I dread to mention the word Brexit and things I'm sure will continue to be uncertain for some time around that. But looking at uh, Brexit's short-term impact as an economist, you know, we've obviously, the Bank of England, everyone has had their own estimates about the short and longer-term impact of certain, whatever range of arrangements with the European Union. And there's been plenty of discussion around that. Of course, when it actually happens, we should be able to see, to get an answer, to what the impact might be, start to isolate some of these consequences. Is COVID going to make that completely impossible that we will be no clearer in six months' time what the short term impact of Brexit was than we were right now?
1: Well, I think COVID uh, makes it tricky getting a read of anything at the moment economically beyond COVID itself. But I, I do think, you know, we're, and we'll see what comes to pass in the, in the days and weeks ahead on that front. I don't think there will be any have any problems identifying um, what frictional effects leaving the customs union, which of course will happen, come what may, at the end of this year, will have uh, upon trade uh, on the movement of of goods and services and of people. I think that would be very visible, uh, except, not least from.
0: But COVID has already caused these enormous shortages and pro- backlogs at, at ports all over the world. So in a sense, even that is harder to see.
1: It's true that in, in, in lots of ports, including some UK ones, Southampton and Felixstowe, there have been um, frictions there. Frictions that actually are completely unrelated to Brexit, are largely unrelated to Brexit, in the sense that they're to do with the uh, kind of asynchronous pattern of recovery, with China recovering far more rapidly uh, than, uh, say, the, the UK. And that means there's uh, you know lots of empty containers stacked up um, at ports in the UK, uh, not yet ready for a return journey. Um, but I do think when it comes to the Brexit effects, that will show up in a somewhat different, in a somewhat different way. Identifying that effect will be very clear. We've been doing intensive surveys of businesses, as have many others, to try and gauge the degree of preparedness. A lot has been done, but there's still some residual uncertainty that more needs to be done, and that could make for some frictional costs uh, come the new year, as I say, irrespective of what deal ends up being done. I mean, funnily enough, one of the, one of the, the benefits that very small silver linings from this crisis has been that we and others have become much more inquisitive about new sources of data, uh, including sources of data, for example, about what is happening around ports. How long are the lorry queues? How fast is transport moving? We've used that for COVID purposes, and this will serve useful double duty when it comes to understanding the Brexit effects uh, in a few weeks' time.
0: Well, you give me a great opportunity to plug that Bloomberg Economics' own daily activity indicators that we've uh, we've produced precisely to capture some of this very short-term data, like the Google Mobility data and restaurant bookings and indeed port movements. We've got some satellite footage of of ports and things that we're bringing onto the Bloomberg terminal. And it is it, you're quite right that it's come into its own all those data sources. Um I don't want to uh, go into the all the sort of arguments that have happened over Brexit or where we're going and everything else. But I wonder, I mean, people from the outside, certainly many economists have always, it's fair to say they've tended to see this as a very odd move for a country like the UK to make just from a straight sort of economic standpoint. But I noticed at least one, Tyler Cohen, who writes for Bloomberg, uh, did a column the other day suggesting that actually COVID had slightly changed his mind uh, about the pros and cons um, because of the great emphasis it put on countries being able to be nimble. I wonder whether the last few years had made you think in a more, in a, just in a sort of a pure economic sense, taken a different view of the costs and benefits of leaving a big trading bloc like the EU.
1: So I think even uh, pre-COVID, even pre-Brexit actually, Steph, within the economics community, we were slightly changing our tune when it came to thinking through fully the costs and benefits of increasing globalization. I think net overall, we'd sort of majored on the benefits, the fruits of which tend to be spread quite widely and quite thinly. That probably underemphasized uh, the costs uh, that were felt by often a minority, but a very important minority because the costs were very large. So I think even pre, pre any of the recent events, um, there'd been a bit of an imbalance in the debate about the benefits of trade, the distribution of of winners and losers. And that had started to shape debate about trade in a somewhat different way. On top of that, we now get uh, the COVID crisis. And one of the big learnings from that was just how quickly uh, global supply chains uh, fractured and broke and just how quickly nation states uh, went to ground uh, when facing situations of acute stress. In some ways, this has very many similarities to the situation 10, 12 years ago at the time of global financial crisis, where the fractures were not in global supply chains for goods and services, but instead in global credit chains for flows of uh, flows of monies. And the lesson we took away from that, the key lesson we took away from that, was one of greater resilience within the financial sector. And I hope one of the lessons we take away from this COVID crisis is the need for greater resilience in this case in the non-financial parts of our economy. Now to be clear, by that I don't mean we should try and make everything at home. We should onshore everything that moves and move to quasi-autarky when it comes to trade. That is not the right message, as it was not the right lesson to have learned from the global financial crisis. Uh, we have preserved an open and free uh, and liberalized international financial system, and that, of course, delivers great benefits. But we have, in addition, put much greater focus on the resilience, including the domestic resilience of our financial institutions. And that's the self-same debate we need to have about the non-financial sector. uh, Now, this is not either or open or closed. This is a situation where resilience calls for having both international and domestic supply chains serving as insurance policy. This is a slightly different flavor of globalization than the one we had pre-COVID
0: you talk about uh, not about open and closed of course the intriguing thing about the uh, the campaign f- campaign for brexit was that both arguments were used it was used as a reason for for having more openness and also to be more closed and we've been working through some of those contradictions over the last few years um you're you're getting into the territory of broader lessons from the covid experience for the global policymaker uh, what are the what are some of the or the one or two sort of key takeaways for you in terms of how it could affect policy in practice? So I think looking
1: to next year, there's going to be two, at least two, very crucial pivots, policy pivots, going to be needed. Steph, um, both are going to need some fancy footwork to be pulled off uh, elegantly, but I hope they both can be. I mean, the first is the, the little handoff between, if you like. Um, Public sector demand and private sector demand. So, 2020 of necessity has been a year when the, the when governments have had to stood have stood tall, and have supported demand, uh, near term consumption, jobs, incomes, to keep economies afloat. As as I hope happens, the recovery comes on stream next year. There will then need to be a handover as private sector demand picks up. And public sector demand can then uh, switch down, leaving aggregate demand uh, hopefully intact and indeed rising. Getting the timing of that right is going to be absolutely crucial for those of us in the policy community. But actually, there's a second pivot. Let's, less discussed, but in some ways, every bit as important. And that's about the, the composition of demand as between consumption versus investment on the part of both the private sector and the public sector. This year has been a year about keeping near-term spending, current spending up and investment spending has understandably been the casualty of that given the uncertainty about future demand. But if we are indeed to sustain the near-term recovery, to sustain growth in productivity and living standards, then investment will need to come back on stream at pace, supported by both the private sector Uh, and by the public sector. And that switch from consumption to investment, from spending for today to spending for tomorrow, is for me as important a policy pivot to bring about with our fancy footwork during the course of next year, about building out the supply side of our economy, about using the crisis opportunity to tackle some of those long-standing deep-seated fault lines in what might be colloquially called the supply side of our economy, fault lines that were yawning pre-COVID and which have become, if anything, larger still as a result uh, of covid
0: I mentioned at the start, you have tended to stray outside some of the sort of traditional macroeconomic policy. You know, you don't just, when you give your speeches, you don't always just talk about inflation and, and monetary policy. Um, you've talked about local economics and f- issues around fairness and equity. Um, do you think there's a risk, you know, if if central bankers are inevitably going into this territory, because if you like, that's kind of where the action is and it's an important part of how monetary policy works that it interacts with these aspects of economies and societies. On the other hand, it does take you out of your comfort zone and potentially take you beyond what many people would say was your mandate. Um, do you, how do you think about that tension? You know, that central banks are sort of thinking about talking about more stuff, but actually still have quite a strict, narrow mandate.
1: Yeah, maybe two points on that stuff. It, I mean, it's a perfectly—it's a good challenge. Um I mean, on the core mandates, um, they have never been more important than now. So without financial stability, this awful crisis would have been much worse. And when it comes to the monetary side of our mandate, absolutely crucial, if we enter that uh, the sunny uplands next year, the recovery next year, that there is an absolute laser focus on our core inflation mandates because absolutely the last thing the world needs right now uh, is a nasty inflation surprise. So core mandate's never been more important than now, um, particularly as we enter the recovery phase. Equally, there are indisputably these mega trends, these meta forces shaping the path of our economies, uh, of our jobs markets, of our businesses, right now. You mentioned a few of them. Uh, Issues around the spatial distribution of activity, issues uh, around um, inequality, imbalances, be they income or wealth or generational, issues around the potential fruits of technological innovation. Those are shaping our economies in ways that central banks Simply cannot afford to overlook or ignore. By and large, by and large, climate would be another one, of course. By and large, these aren't things that we, as central bankers, with our meagre set of tools, can actually influence. They're structural things. But are these things crucial in doing the day job of keeping the economy strong and stable, of reshaping the financial system in a way that keep it, keep it strong and stable, uh, in setting the appropriate level of interest rates to keep the economy uh, growing, absolutely they are. If you look at the factors, for example, that have driven down levels of global real interest rates over time, the, the list there is exactly the list that we've just recounted. Uh, issues of demography or inequality or technology. So for me, these are very much in mandate because without a deep and rich understanding of those things as central bankers, we will set policy wrong, and the economy will suffer as a consequence.
0: You talked about the, avoid, the importance of avoiding an inflation surprise in the short term. You know, the Bank of England has, has looked through jumps up in inflation that have come from specific causes over the last few years, whether it's you know increases in tax rates or changes in the value of uh, the pound. Um, do you think that if there's a if there's a Bounce up in inflation that seems very associated with the immediate bounce back from COVID, is that something you would look through in the same way? Do you think?
1: I think this has to be very much case by case, uh, and it, a lot hinges on how how short term is short term, how temporary is temporary. Um, there are certain you know for- forces and factors which you expect to have a very temporary uh, effect, for example, shifts in uh, indirect taxes, the like of which we've seen in a number of countries, including the UK, uh, shifts in oil prices, even shifts in the exchange rate. Um, there are other shifts on the supply side of the economy whose effects can be slightly longer lived in their impact uh, on inflation. So. While well, I think you know it's likely that very, any very temporary spike in inflation would be looked through in a situation where there's still a significant output gap in many economies, uh, we'd be super vigilant you know, with so much monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus having been put in the system that this doesn't show up in any more medium-term measures of inflation uh, expectations because what can even appear On the face of it to be a temporary effect, if it affects expectations, could easily get locked in. And we're not there at the moment. I hope we don't get there, but it's definitely a risk we need to pay account of.
0: Uh, Just going back to climate change, because you mentioned how that might affect uh, lots of things that the central banks are interested in. Um, There has obviously been quite a lively debate about how much central banks should have Climate, the climate change agenda in it in their mandate, and have it actually affect, for example, um, the bonds that they purchase when they're trying to push money into the economy through quantitative easing. Um, Lord Nick Stern said on this show he thought it was absolutely part of their purview because uh, one of the jobs of a central bank is to pursue the sort of broader economic objectives of a country. Um, but we've also had Larry Summers saying that they should clear stay out of it, stay out of these kind of and claiming that they can affect these things and the German central bank governor doesn't like it either. What do you think?
1: Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. Take it, it, the Bank of England's mandate that within that we have a responsibility, um, both when we're setting monetary policy and financial stability policy to support the government, the UK government's policy, economic policies, one of which is a net zero target by 2050. Um, now what we don't have is an explicit uh, climate uh, mandate And indeed, what we can do as central banks uh, to address climate risks, at least with our own portfolios, is relatively limited. That's at the Bank of England, we have about 20 billion pounds uh, sterling of corporate bonds. That's a pretty modest portfolio. Shifting that around is very much marginalia when it comes to uh, risk pricing uh, of dirty or clean assets. Can we, should we, have a somewhat broader role uh, when it comes to thinking about risks being run across the global financial system or the domestic financial system. Yes, yes, we yes we can and yes we should, and yes we are when it comes to better understanding those risks, uh, shining a searchlight on those risks, and asking financial firms to manage those climate risks uh, in a more um, upfront and forthright way than they have in the past. And that's a role. We've been playing for the last several years now. Indeed, I think the Bank of England probably played a pretty prominent role uh, under Mark Carney in putting that on Global Central Bank's agenda. For me, it's absolutely right and proper that it's on uh, our agenda and we play our part, our classic um, catalytic role with the private sector in getting them to pay uh, proper attention to these risks and to manage them in a way that supports the broader climate agenda that Stern and others have been promoting for, for so many years and very successfully.
0: You have touched on uh, inclus- inclusivity, inequality. We know that this Crisis has had a very unequal impact on the population, and you've even got a big chunk of the population potentially benefiting from <clears throat> not just the money that's gone into the economy from the government, but also the fact that financial markets have bounced back um, so quickly. You know, it has. Beca- it's been increasingly clear, and I think a concern to some people uh, in central banks, how uh, central bank policy has become associated with rising wealth inequality. Rightly or wrongly, um, because such a big lever of policy has been increasing asset prices, and of course we have generally rich people who have the most assets. Uh, do you feel a little bit better about the uh, money that the Bank of England and others have pumped into the economy this time around, in that so much of it was also along going alongside a big fiscal expansion? Does that feel like feel like it's going to have a better impact in terms of the gap between rich and poor to you, or is it much more complicated?
1: No, I think absolutely that, that we've had a, you know, there's, this this fiscal monetary um, partnership uh, has certainly and surely has helped. I mean, truth be told, central bank tools haven't got surgical precision when it comes to uh, tackling differences across different cohorts uh, of the economy, whereas fiscal tools do and indeed have been used during the course of this year to support those, their incomes, their jobs uh, that were most in need. And that is only, that's only—that's a very sensible assignment of tools with monetary policy to an extent playing second fiddle and supporting aggregate demand alongside fiscal policy in the front line, supporting aggregate demand, and within that supporting the parts of aggregate demand uh, that have been hardest hit. Truth be told, I was comfortable about our monetary policy actions even before this COVID crisis. I took very seriously, I should say, um, the question of, has, uh, have our actions worsened uh, inequalities in society, whether those are income or wealth or generational or, or spatial? And I've cut the data every which way, uh, almost household by household actually, to try and engage with that question. Um, I mean, what I conclude from that research is that, and the reason I can sleep at night, um, uh, is because I'm pretty confident that without the monetary response that we saw, here in the UK would have seen, you know, anywhere between three quarters of a million and a million more jobs having been lost. And of course those jobs would have been lost disproportionately among the poorer people uh, in society. And if you work through both the jobs channel and the asset price and income and and wealth channel that you mentioned, the net effect of our monetary actions has not in fact been to worsen inequalities of income uh, or wealth, or indeed even generationally either. And while our tools, I say, aren't best equipped to tackle those problems anyway, as best I can tell, both pre-COVID and post-COVID uh monetary policy, central banks, haven't made what is no, without question, a difficult inequality situation uh, any worse. That is not the same as saying, to be clear, I don't think those problems haven't been made worse by the COVID crisis. They surely have, certainly income and wealth-wise, and almost certainly generationally as well. And that's why those structural questions, those supply-side questions are ones that the policy community collectively, including central banks, need to really get on to with, as I say, renewed zeal and force come the second half of next year.
0: I guess however you look at the data though, we have had yet another year when Wall Street, broadly conceived, has done a lot better than Main Street. You know, the financial markets have had a much better year of it. And indeed a lot of financial institutions have had a much better year of it than you might have anticipated for the worst recession in living memory across industrial economies. So I just, I mean, how sustainable do you think it is to year after year to continue to have that gulf between the two?
1: Well, I'm hoping that 2021, Steph, is the year when the gulf begins to be closed.
0: We've been saying that for years.
1: (laughs) Well, this this time, um, this time I'll be right. (laughs) I I hope (laughs) I'm right. Um, I mean, there are very good reasons to, to, um, I think, to expect with the fantastic vaccine news and with a, the support from policy in place, in the tank already, to think that, that next year we'll see a reversal, a sharp reversal, I hope, in our economic fortunes, and particularly those uh, who may have lost their job, uh, that they're able to return to work at speed. That's a crucial thing for avoiding those long-term uh, scarring effects. That, that's the near-term prognosis. And for me, there are, there are plenty of positives there. But it's necessary, but by no means sufficient for growing living standards, for growing productivity over the medium term. It wasn't enough pre-COVID, and it certainly is not, will not be enough in the light of COVID. And that's why this other agenda really comes in. Tackling those structural fault lines, ultimately, Steph, will be the thing that closes those gaps between the, the best off and the, less, and, the, and the least well off, or between, if you like, Wall Street, Uh, and Main Street. The truth is, and this is a crucial point, those fault lines, those inequalities um, are not uh, irreducible. we know from past experience, they are amenable to purposive policy action, the right type of purposive policy action on innovation, on skills, uh, on infrastructure. And my hope for 2021 would be that those things get another fair hearing uh, and a big push because ultimately that will, that will close the gaps you've rightly identified.
0: Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot uh, and ask you the same question that I'm going to ask the brainy correspondents uh, next week. Uh, what's, your, what's your wild card for the next year or two? Something, you know, this time a year ago, none of us, certainly the equivalent podcast, we did not see the COVID coming. Um, What do you think we might be talking about over the next year or two, a lot more than we are now?
1: Well, I think, and I hope actually, that that, um, for all the right reasons, that inflation is a more central part of our narrative uh, as financial market participants, as central banks, um, uh, for the right reasons, inflation returning to target and remaining at target. Um, But for me, the real wild card would be productivity, prospectively. So we entered this crisis globally with productivity laid low. Uh, A bunch of reasons uh, for that, which I won't rehearse because many of the listeners will know about them already. I think there's a chance, Steph, that some of the structural shifts uh, brought about, behavioral shifts brought about by COVID, might be a factor, perhaps even a key factor, that reverses the fortunes of global productivity uh, in the years ahead. The truth is of necessity this year, many businesses have had to get themselves digitally match fit. They should have been match fit previously, but now of necessity they've, been, they've had to, uh, and so too of their workers. And I think uh, that might lead to a, a quite striking change in business models. The, the, if you like, the optimal capital to labor ratio within many firms uh, might be altered uh, decisively in ways that are positive for productivity. I think when it comes to the way we work, uh, how we work, you know, the truth is pre-COVID we were stuck in this rather odd equilibrium uh, where many of us spent you know, too many of our working hours doing the most unproductive and the worst paid work ever invented, namely commuting, because of course that's what commuting is. It's unpaid, unproductive work. If many of us can do less of that unpaid, unproductive work, that too ought to be a boon uh, for activity and for productivity. So I think there are, within, you know, there's lots of reasons to be cautious, uh, lots of reasons, lots of things that could go wrong. But when it comes to those behavioral shifts and their consequences for how we work, how we run businesses, I think many of those could, could, if we're uh, if we're canny, uh, be a productivity po- positive, and could lead us to tackle decisively what has been a long-standing productivity puzzle that has laid behind many of those rising inequalities that you mentioned earlier on.
0: I'm very glad you say that. I had the same debate with our economists because I had to force them to put a positive productivity shock in their scenarios as one of their scenarios coming out of this. We've had so much discussion of our poor productivity globally, making not making more stuff with the same number of people um, that uh, it's almost hard for them to compute that we might have good news, but I think you might be right. The other thing I liked about what you said, it shows what the true central banker you are, that what you want for Christmas is inflation on target. What more can you ask for? <laughs> um, uh, Andy Holday, uh, I, I don't know who will be listening to this, I, I, but if you are out there uh, having felt that you'd already had far too much of your closest and dearest family over the Christmas period, and you've taken refuge in this conversation, I hope it did the job. And thank you very much to the Chief Economist of the Bank of England, Andy Holday. Thanks, Steph. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics in 2020. We'll be back with another special edition next week, looking ahead to 2021. In the meantime, remember you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, you can follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced as ever by Magnus Hendrickson with special thanks to Andy Holdane and everyone at the Bank of England press office. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.